This episode of the Getting Smart podcast is a rebroadcast of our latest Getting Smart town hall. This one, we talked about apprenticeships. We took a look at the various apprenticeship pathways and tried to answer some of the following questions. What does a modern apprenticeship system look like, and where does the United States fall? How might we set up the necessary systems to create earn and learn opportunities in technology and teaching pathways? And what enabling policies do we need to make sure that this happens? We had a great cast of guests come in to share their various insights from teaching pathways to tech pathways. We hope you enjoy this episode. Apprenticeships are really an emerging uh, pathway. We're, we're leading a new pathways campaign here at, at Getting Smart, and we're, we're really interested in um, alternative post-secondary pathways, particularly earn and learn ladders that uh, combine learning and, and working. It's really exciting that teaching uh, has turned out to be a leading segment uh, for apprenticeships and um, accelerated paths to uh, to teaching, and um, that is happening in in large part because of the guests that we have today, Maureen and and Aaron. Uh, but the leading ad- advocate for apprenticeships in America in in the last five years has really been Ryan Craig. He, he's the most important post secondary investor in America and. And both uh, through his investments and his advocacy, um, he, he uh, recently launched a nonprofit and uh, and just had a book come out called Apprenticeship Nation. And uh, we are seeing, obviously, you're very familiar with the crisis of affordability. Uh, there's an equal crisis of employability, where 40% of college grads are underemployed. Uh, obviously, those who aren't. <laughs> aren't graduating from college, uh, are experiencing worse uh, outcomes. And new college grads, is just the Washington Post uh, from this past weekend, new college grads uh, more likely to be unemployed uh, in today's job market than uh, the average uh, the average worker. And yet we continue to throw money at colleges, right? That's the, the, the federal policy has been dominated by uh, loan forgiveness. Um, uh, and uh, when states have surpluses, uh, they they throw more money at, uh, at at colleges, and I think what's been missing is a clear alternative that the country can rally around. Uh, I think colleges are doing as good a job as they've ever done at equipping young people uh, with uh, the critical thinking skills, problem solving skills, communication skills that they needed for the good jobs of the last century. Right? If you go to work at uh, Don Draper's uh, advertising uh, agency in Mad Men, what did you need? College degree signified an ability to to learn, you know, probably the ability to survive a three martini lunch with Don Draper. Uh, but that's not all we need today. Uh, companies that's companies want uh, want that. Plus, they want discrete combinations of digital skills, business skills, business knowledge, role knowledge, and that's obviously not something that we're seeing from colleges. Colleges remain largely closed off from the real economy. If you go and visit. Uh, and your alma mater, it's going to look very similar to uh, in terms of the academic programs, in terms of who's teaching, uh, which are uh, faculty with terminal degrees, meaning they've never worked outside of education, and in terms of the lack of accountability that boards of trustees and accreditors are are, are putting on colleges. Apprenticeship, to me, is the obvious answer. It's the only alternative that levels the playing field for people of all backgrounds because it's a job. 
first and foremost. It's a paying job that pays a living wage uh, from day one uh, with built-in training on the job training as well as formal uh, classroom training called related technical instruction. Uh, and you have pay increases as you become more productive and clear career paths. And the ROI uh, is documented and uh, superb. There is no better uh, return on investment for any workforce or education pathway. And I think it's important more and now more than ever because the skills that employers are finding uh, hard to find, uh, those digital skills, those uh, those platform skills are actually harder to learn in a classroom than they are by doing. Think about Salesforce. You can't really learn to be a Salesforce administrator in a classroom. You kind of have to have to do it. And it's not only a skills gap. Uh, we're seeing increasingly uh, something called an experience gap where jobs that used to be entry-level jobs are asking for three, six, 12 months uh, worth of experience. This is a, a quote from the Washington, that Washington Post article. Uh, and cybersecurity is a perfect example of this um, in terms of warning where we're heading with AI. So a decade ago, someone with a modest technical background could get a good entry-level job in cybersecurity. You'd be a tier one analyst in a SOC or a managed security service provider. So that's first row of defense, where you're looking at the alerts coming in, deciding which you can ignore, which you need to resolve, which you need to elevate. Today, almost all that's been automated. And so the entry-level jobs in SOCs uh, are now what used to be tier two, and those ask for CISSP certifications, uh, which, uh, which require three to five years experience. Uh, so just as automation uh, has effectively eliminated entry-level uh, jobs in cybersecurity, uh, generative AI is going to do the same thing uh, for entry-level jobs across the across the economy. Think about your first, you know, good professional job post-college. Mine was in consulting. I spent at least half of my time, say, you know, 30, 35 hours a week building PowerPoint presentations that I'm pretty sure no one looked at. Uh, you know, going forward, that's going to be an hour a week using AI. You have the 34 hours. What are you going to do? Well, the employers are going to expect you to do higher value work, but you're not going to be able to do that higher value work without experience. So AI is going to dramatically widen the experience gap. Uh, and so we need to figure out how to integrate real work experience uh, into our educational pathways. Now, apprenticeship is not the only way to do it. You could do it with systematic internships, right? Uh, Co-op programs, uh, although only a handful of U.S. Uh, colleges and universities have have built them. Uh, and as someone just noted to me, uh, most of them tend to be uh, former night schools like Northeastern and, and Drexel, which is sort of interesting. Um, so maybe it's sort of an anomaly <laughs> of history to build a, a really robust co-op program. But in general, internships tend to be um, relationship-based, uh, kind of catch as catch can, uh, and not not a real driver of a qual of equality, more a driver of inequality. Uh, you can have work integrated learning, right? Uh, these new platforms which allow you to take one project and integrate it into, as a capstone experience uh, into a course. Platforms like Ripen, um, but you know those aren't silver bullets, right? I've seen lots of uh, lots of job descriptions for jobs that used to be entry level jobs that ask for experience and say internships don't count. So apprenticeships are, uh, they are a silver bullet for this if we can figure out how to scale uh, apprenticeships, which is what the book uh, is about. And they're a silver bullet because apprenticeships are jobs where you're hiring not based on skills or experience. You're hiring with the expectation that 
the apprentice is going to gain those skills and that experience over the course of the apprenticeship. So I'll stop there and we can kick off the discussion. <clears throat> Thanks, Ryan. Um, I re really appreciate the that recent insight about the, the potential experience gap. It makes work-based learning, um, internships and apprenticeships uh, e even more important than ever. It's, um, it's super exciting that, uh, that we're seeing early leadership on bringing these concepts of apprenticeships into education. And uh, Maureen Tracy Mooney is a special advisor to the secretary at the Department of Ed. And she, with a little help from Aaron Mode, are, uh, are going to tell us what's happening in education apprenticeships. Thanks so much, Tom. It's such a pleasure to be with all of you uh, here today. We're focused on our big goal of eliminating educator shortages for every school. And I, before we dive into apprenticeship, I just want to frame a little bit where we are um, in public education right now. Um, so from February to May of 2020, our local public education system lost 9% of all of its employees, uh, 730,000 jobs, which is just uh, a tremendous number felt very much by all the folks on the ground on the call today. Um, we've made a, a lot of progress since then. So when you look at uh, local public education jobs, so including but beyond teachers, um, as of October, uh, when you look back to our last pre-pandemic back to school, we're only down about 0.17% in those total local public education jobs, which is significant progress. But we know, however, that we still have significant teacher shortages. Um, there's a lot of disparities in recovery from state to state, community to community. We know, as always, that those shortages are disproportionately impacting our students of color, our students in high poverty communities, uh, English language learners, our students with disabilities. Um, and we have a long way to go. Uh, the shortages our schools experienced were well documented going into the pandemic. And the pandemic really only exacerbated it. So while we've made progress, we're very laser focused on this challenge. Um, the department has been launching some new data visibility um, tools to kind of help the field um, consider some of the challenges we're facing right now. And at the end, I'll, I'll share a link where you can find this and, and other fun graphs. What this graph is showing us is where our states are um, roughly right now relative to before the pandemic when it comes to local public education jobs. And to make this a little more complicated as we do with data sometimes, um, when we get down to the state level and local public education, we have to use uh, 12 month moving averages for our data. So this data lags a bit. What it's really doing is comparing October um, 2022 to September 2023, those monthly averages for total local public education in states to that same pre-pandemic period. So October 18 to September. 19. So you can see here that there's a lot of variation across the country in terms of where states are. Um, states like Delaware are already above where they were before the pandemic. Um, states like Florida, Alaska uh, remain significantly below their pre-pandemic staffing levels. The department has really been focused on five key strategies when we talk about eliminating educator shortages. And this reflects what we're doing and what we're encouraging uh, states and local communities to do as well. First, we recognize that we can't address shortages without improving teacher compensation uh, and working conditions. If we continue to allow, allow is not the right word here, if we continue to pay teachers a wage that is 
significantly under that paid by their other college educated peers, we're just not going to be able to attra attract and retain into the profession the folks that we need. Um, two, we're focused on scaling high quality and affordable pathways into the education profession. As Ryan noted, um, when we talk about affordability, it's a huge barrier, especially when combined with the competitive wages challenge that we have. Uh, for some folks, um, the math is just not adding up, and that's not fair, and it's not what our students need. Um, so we have to expand both high quality and affordable pathways in the profession. Two, we have to provide really high quality new teacher induction and ongoing job embedded professional support throughout their te our, our teachers' careers so that we're retaining those educators and so that they're continuing to go grow throughout their, their um, careers. Fourth, we need to invest in teacher leadership and career advancement opportunities for teachers so that we're retaining our teachers for longer. Uh, we know that for some teachers, staying in the classroom for 30 years is absolutely something that they're comfortable with. We know that that's not every teacher, and we have to provide our, 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 our educators with opportunities to advance in their careers without removing everybody from the classroom. And then finally, throughout all this work, we're focused on educator diversity. Um, we can't address our shortages while leaving huge chunks of our population behind. And we also know that educator diversity is, is critical for improving student outcomes as well. So I provide that overview because we believe that registered apprenticeship programs for teachers really hit so many of these categories. Um, first is providing high quality and affordable pathways into the profession. The department really believes it's important for folks to have robust clinical ex experience in the classroom before they become a teacher of record. These pathways provide an opportunity for our teachers to do that uh, and to earn money while they do it, addressing affordability issues. And we're excited how we're seeing many states and communities open up um, new opportunities for paraprofessionals that may have decades of experience in the classroom, but just couldn't afford to become a teacher. Um, it's providing leadership and advancement opportunities for our more veteran teachers to coach and support um, our apprentices. It's promoting our educator diversity strategy by really addressing that financial barrier. We know that our college students of color graduate from college with significantly more debt than white college graduates do. And that means it's even more difficult for them to pursue an, a, a master's degree to become a teacher. Apprenticeship programs help address that and can provide more opportunities for candidates of color to become teachers. So that's just a little framing of why apprenticeship and why at this moment. Um, we've made some significant progress so far. So at the beginning of the Biden-Harris administration, there were no registered apprenticeship programs um, for teachers. As of November, um, there are registered programs in 28 states and Puerto Rico. Uh, and some of these are, are sponsored at the state level. Some of them are sponsored by districts. Some of them are sponsored by uh, educator preparation programs, a variety of sponsors. And they're also at different stages. Um, so some of them are registered, but just starting the process of enrolling apprentices. Some, like many in Tennessee, are, are already uh, enrolling hundreds of apprentices. Um, but it's the last year has been a, a time of continuous growth. We launched um, this joint project with, between the Department of Labor and the Department of Education uh, at a White House meeting in August of 2022 with uh, First Lady Jill Biden, then Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, and our Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, as well as Ambassador Susan Rice, our former Domestic Policy Counselor Director, and have been really focused on this interagency approach to support registered apprenticeship programs for teachers with critical 
partners like Aaron Moat uh, and others. So I want to review just uh, at a high level some of the resources and funding streams that can be used to support registered apprenticeship programs for teachers. Um, so obviously there's the COVID relief funds as is well documented. The period of availability of those funds are starting to uh, peaker out. Um, but there's many core federal funding streams in addition to competitive programs that can support registered apprenticeship programs for teachers from Title I to Title II, <coughs> excuse me, or Perkins State Grants. Um, we've provided a wealth of resources identifying how these funds can be used to support registered apprenticeship programs from our ESSER funds, um, a dear colleague letter between Secretary Cardona and then Secretary Walsh calling on states to establish these programs, identifying how federal workforce and state workforce funds can be used to support these programs once they're registered. That's a reason for significant interest we're seeing from the field because it allows um, our districts, our states to draw on another sustainable force of funding to support these programs once they're registered by being able to access those WIOA dollars. Um, uh, our colleagues in the Office of Career and Technical and Adult Education put out uh, a great memorandum on how Perkins funds can be used to address CTE and other educator shortages, including through investments in apprenticeship programs. And all of these resources and more are highlighted on our Raise the Bar educator web pages. As we um, expand registered apprenticeship programs, we're really focused on quality. Obviously, this is a moment of tremendous uh, momentum for this movement. It's really important that we all um, row together towards quality, which is why we're really excited about something that Aaron's going to talk a little bit more about, which are the national guidelines for registered apprenticeship programs for teachers produced by the Pathways Alliance. <clears throat> Just to frame that up a little bit, we're really excited about these guidelines because they're drafted by leaders in the field. Um, it's really helpful to be able to point to a set of common standards that so many folks agree to, <laughs> agree with. Um, two, it provides a framework that states can use and adjust to their own needs and purposes while aligning to high quality. Um, they provide a pathway to expedited approval by the Department of Labor because if you or, or your state apprenticeship agency, because if you're adopting these Pathways Alliance standards, um, then you can be confident that you're meeting the requirements of a registered apprenticeship program. And again, um, they uh, align to high quality standards. So with that uh, little uh, tee up, I'm going to hand it over to my colleague, Aaron Moat. Erin's uh, at Innovate Edu, which has been leading our work with the Pathways Alliance and has been a really critical partner um, from day one in the administration's work in this effort. Erin, so off to you. Thanks, Mo. Um, I'm going to share a little bit about the national guideline standards, but Tom, is there anything you wanted to pick up here uh, on some of the data that Mo shared before I do that? I I would love to have you just describe how this works for learners. I'm still not clear. How Does this start in high school? Is dual enrollment usually involved? When do they get paid? When is it actually called an apprenticeship? Maybe you could walk through what a typical pathway might look like from high school to being an employed teacher. Yeah, so registered apprenticeship programs um, can look like, can be structured in a number of ways. So yes, you can have a high school academy that's um, part of an apprenticeship program. We're seeing a lot of places focus on um, folks that already have their BA or have some credit towards a BA and through an apprenticeship program while they're working. The, the core piece of apprenticeship is that, that work experience 
um, before you're becoming the teacher of record with our, our focus on quality, work experience with integrated coursework with a partner EPP program. So this is not detached from our higher education system, from our, our traditional sort of teacher certification system, it's blending those two worlds together. So while they're having their classroom experience, they're taking that coursework and it's all woven together, but it allows them to earn a salary while they're doing it because some folks can't afford <laughs> to not have a job uh, and can't afford that higher education tuition. Um, so this allows them to, uh, allows a sort of grow your own pathway that is addressing that financial barrier. Those are the very basics of what all of our registered apprenticeship programs have in common. As you your skill with an apprenticeship program increases, so does your pay. Um, but it can look like a bunch of different things. Some folks are, are doing only a, a, a post-BA program where you're earning a master's. Some folks are structuring a program where they're earning their BA and their teacher certification. It all varies by the needs uh, that that local community identifies or the state. How long does a paid apprenticeship typically last? Is that one to two years? So it really varies by program and, and if you have a BA or not, for example, but it can be from one to three years. Okay. Aaron, any anything to build on there? I would just say that this is one of the really breakthrough things about these national guideline standards is for the first time, the guideline standards contemplate a wide range of what we would consider clinical hours or on the job learning hours. And so uh, I'll share some resources where folks can actually look at some of the best in class apprenticeship programs that are happening across the country, whether that's Ball State. And the program that they have where high schoolers actually begin on the job learning and after school programs before going into a BA as part of a apprenticeship or Dallas College, which is a more traditional IHE um, organized uh, apprenticeship program that can be one to four years. And I think what's really exciting about the apprenticeship model is that the available funds um, from the Department of Labor can be used in really innovative ways. And so I want to highlight the work that Mo shared just about the braiding of federal funds. But if you get funds from the Department of Labor, from your state or from the federal Department of Labor, you can use those dollars for things like transportation, childcare support, some of these ancillary support services that we know are incredibly necessary to making sure that we have diverse educator pathways. With that, let me share a little bit about the guidelines and dig in. Uh, we're with the Pathways Alliance. This is a group um, that was founded by Innovate EDU and the Learning Policy Institute. And it is really an uncommon alliance of leading education organizations who are dedicated to supporting and implementing diverse and inclusive educator prep pipelines. And so not only have we written the national guideline standards for educator apprenticeships, but we also have authored a national definition of a teacher residency, which many states are using in building and defining what a quality teacher residency program looks like, like in New Mexico. The group of folks that built the national guideline standards for apprenticeship standards for educator apprenticeships, I know that's a lot of words, um, was an amazing working group led by AACTE, National Center for Grow Your Own, and Deans for Impact, as well as our partners in labor and higher ed, as well as the National Association of Workforce Boards. And what's really exciting about these guideline standards is for the first time, the national guideline standards outline 10 competencies for K-12 teaching apprenticeships. 
based on a national framework for those competencies. These will be nationally recognized and industry accepted standards that have been used to develop this competency framework. So if you're using these guidelines, you don't have to get out there and build a Department of Labor uh, framework for competencies. You can just use the Pathways guidelines. And again, that will help with that expedited approval. These guidelines have been fit for local needs. So there's actually two sets of national guideline standards. There's one for collective bargaining environments and one for non-collective bargaining environments. And so again, I really uh, hope that you will go in and look at the guideline standards and see the type of accommodations that can be made for state licensure requirements while also making sure that we're maintaining essential elements of quality design. One of those elements of quality design is a set of on-the-job learning standards that I talked about earlier in terms of the amount of on-the-job learning and related instruction you should be doing in that program. And it is really dependent on how an apprentice enters the program in terms of degree hours. The other thing that the guidelines establish is that apprentices must be paid at a rate based on a starting teacher salary, which is at least equivalent to the pay rate for paraprofessionals. This is groundbreaking agreement from our partners in labor, in higher ed, and through school district partners. And as well, one pay increase must occur during the apprenticeship. This is usually after a short probationary period. So let's say you want to get started on teacher apprenticeships. You have questions. You think this might be the right program for your district or your state. Well, what's great is that through the U.S. Department of Labor, there is a new intermediary to support K-12 teaching and educator apprenticeships. It's hosted by RTI International, a member of the Pathways Alliance. And this uh, technical assistance center will provide free technical assistance to any organization, district, state, or intermediary who's looking to build, design, or support or implement these programs. I'm going to say it again. It's free technical assistance. Other folks in the Pathways Alliance, like AACTE and Deans for Impact, are working specifically with institutions of higher education. But if you're a school district or a state, this is a great uh, option for you if you need to get started, need help navigating the application process, want to get through. And finally, the most exciting set of things in uh, the Pathways guidelines are all contained within Appendix A. So I love Appendix A, and I'm not going to read this to you, um, but there's a set of things um, in Appendix A that mandate things like a worker ratio, that include bachelor's degrees as a result of the apprenticeship or that you must have a bachelor's degree before entering that apprenticeship. It requires for full state teacher licensure that you, and that if you're a teacher of record, that you have that degree. And what's really exciting is states that might've been walking away from these degree programs for teachers of record are reversing course with apprenticeships because they see it as a sustainable pathway forward like the state of Florida, who just announced that they were shifting how they were going to do their apprenticeships. If you want to learn more, uh, the Pathways Alliance has developed a whole set of resources about apprenticeship models for educators. So why you should use the national guideline standards, why apprenticeship models are important, 
that compendium of apprenticeship programs, which we're updating every six months with the Department of Labor, so you can really look at some of the designs that are happening and being implemented in the field. And then finally, the guidelines themselves. We'll make sure to share all these resources with you. Thanks, Tom. Aaron and, and uh, Maureen, let, let me see if I can summarize really quickly. Um, the, the programs that you two have helped to launch are bringing young people directly from high school into teaching pathways and and also bringing in mid-career professionals. So it's bringing more people into teaching with a often accelerated pathway that's more affordable because you're getting paid and you're probably getting better preparation because it includes real experience. Is that this, the nut? Uh, you're getting paid. And I think that's a huge issue right now in our profession is that, uh, frankly, many teaching candidates were could not uh, afford to work for a year unpaid in our schools. And we uh, need to do better. They're providing critical and essential services. And so earning while you're learning is a important component of this apprenticeship work. Are all apprenticeships a grow your own initiative? In other words, is the host school system always have the intention of, of hiring that professional? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it could be that a district out of their own goodwill wants to train up other districts' teachers, but generally we don't find that to be the case. Districts are investing in this because they want these, these teachers to stay. This is super exciting progress. Um, it's really, and, and this is in 20, how many, 28 states now, Maureen? And Puerto Rico. Stick around if you can. I, I want to I bring Chip in here from Building 21, which operates a couple schools in in um, Pennsylvania and has a growing network of affiliates, really one of the most exciting competency-based applied learning high school models. But uh, we wanted Chip to talk about um, the, the launch pad that he's created where he's, he's bringing tech careers into high schools in the 12th and the 13th year. Um, Chip, tell us about Launchpad, but before you do, do any, any reflections or comments on uh, the teaching apprenticeships that we just talked about? Uh, thanks, Tom. Um, I think it's just absolutely fantastic. And I was sorry not to see Pennsylvania lit up on that screen <laughs> where our two schools are, but maybe we can help change that. I mean, it. yeah, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think it takes this level of um, of really like working from the ground level up to move policy to create the conditions for these to succeed. This is something we looked at in our Allentown school like seven years ago, and we just we just couldn't solve for it. You know, all the obstacles um, that uh, Aaron and Maureen talked about and, and that have helped sort of clear out. So super excited about it. My name is Chip Linehan. Let me give a quick introduction, then I'll share some slides and uh, hand it back to Ryan. So um, Building 21, based in Philadelphia, we operate two uh, competency-based um, relationship-centered um, high schools. Those are in partnership with um, the local school districts, one in Allentown, Pennsylvania, one in Philadelphia. We also support another 50 schools and districts um, across the country, adopting a similar model by providing them coaching, um, resources, curriculum, uh, as well as a learning uh, system suite. Uh, but I'm here to talk about Launchpad. Um, and so let me go ahead and share my screen and I'll give you a little bit of background on 
some of the cool work that we're doing. This is our first cohort um, that we're extremely excited about. So we're currently supporting just around 30 uh, young people from 14 high schools across Philadelphia, um, all non-selective public and charter schools. Uh, so what, what are, what's the problem we're trying to solve? We actually came to this um, very much sort of from a bottoms up perspective where um, we were seeing far too many young people in our Philadelphia and Allentown school graduate from um, high school and not connect to trajectories that reflected their enormous potential. And um, some of those students went off and matriculated to college, but weren't able to get over the finish line in terms of getting a degree. Some went directly into careers, often ending up in sort of dead end entry level jobs. The city of Philadelphia, you know, only a third of our neighborhood high school students are going to college and less than half of those will end up getting a degree in six years. So, you know, what are we doing? And that's what we started to think a lot about. What are we doing for that, that other 80% of students across Philadelphia? Um, the mean annual income for a high school graduate in the city of Philadelphia is under $20,000. So clearly, systemically, we're not doing a great job of connecting these young people to bright, the bright futures they deserve. And then finally, what I would say is, you know, where we're seeing a lot of growth is in technology. And, you know, uh, young people or people who identify as Black or Latinx make up more than half the population in Philly, but represent less than 13% uh, of workers in the tech field. So one of our highest growing areas that has a chance to disrupt some of the numbers I talked about before is really failing to do that. And you could argue is actually making things worse. Um, so, um, you know, we're really focused, my personal background before um, getting a doctorate in education 15 years ago, I spent 20 years in Silicon Valley. And so I'm deeply connected to technology. And so quickly, as we were sort of kicking around, how do we think about building pathways to success for these young people? Um, technology came up on our radar screen and started leveraging some of those connections as well as um, lots of connections in the education space here in Philly. So our mission is really simple. We wanna build accelerated pathways to connect high school students from across Philadelphia to high paying tech careers. Um, our key performance indicators, these are North Stars. So um, at the end of our two and a half year program that concludes, which I'll talk about in a second, at the end of year 13, we want our young people to be making more than $50,000. Um, we want them to uh, be in a, a similar or better job 12 months later, which demonstrates to us that they were well prepared when they left us. And we want to have a competitive ROI. So we raise a significant amount of the dollars to support our program currently through philanthropic sources. And, and uh, we have a calculation for ROI that I can go into um, uh, or provide some more information about. Um, so uh, Launchpad's an adventure in three stages, uh, foundations. So we start with our admissions and enrollment process, the fall of 11th grade for young people. Again, this is for high schools across Philadelphia, including our own. Uh, four of the um, 30 students enrolled uh, this year came from Building 21 and the balance came from um, 12, 13 other schools across the city. Uh, Foundations is just one day a week. We're really focused on one afternoon a week, building community, industry discovery, um, and allowing young people to explore. Is IT something I'm really interested in and feel compelled by? One-on-one, we ratchet things up. And so that is um, 
full-time summer program and then four days a week for three hours uh, an afternoon where we're doing, again, intense community cohort building, um, what we call future-ready skill building, which builds off our competency sets from our high schools, which are really focused um, around um, what we call habits of success, um, collaboration, what a lot of people call durable skills. Um, and then finally, additional uh, exposure and internship opportunities. Um, so that's what we uh, call 101. And that, again, is in year 12. And then liftoff is year 13. So this is 30 hours a week um, where we are building intensive tech skills. I should have mentioned during 101, we do an introduction to Python um, over the course of the year. And then liftoff, we go very deep in um, in specific technology pathways that we believe will lead to jobs. And we've identified some of those pathways where there's a tremendous supply demand imbalance in terms of available workforce. And then we work with local employers for the last part of our program to have a three to six month, you could call it an extended internship, a longer pay, paid apprenticeship where we are the employer of record and it's an opportunity for our employer partners to basically try before you buy to work with young people um, before a full-time hire when they leave our program. And it also gives our young people the opportunity to build um, their experience. So in addition to those technical skills, those durable skills, um, we also want them to leave us with um, experience and a portfolio of work um, that can support them in their launch into their, uh, into their careers. Ryan, um, I want to give you a chance to comment on, on both uh, Launchpad and and the teacher apprenticeships as it's kind of specific apprenticeship applications in education. Yeah, well, I don't want to be the one to throw a little cold water here, but just to give folks a sense of where we are on apprenticeship as a country, um, some some great great progress certainly on teaching and a great uh, example there, uh, Chip. But as a nation, uh, we are last on apprenticeship among developed countries. We have half a million apprentices in the country. That's 0.3% of the workforce. And 70% of those apprentices are in the construction trades. You won't be surprised to hear that the giants of Central Europe, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, are 10 to 15 times better per capita than we are. But you probably will be surprised to learn that the UK, Australia, Canada, France are eight times better than we are and in those countries, it's very common to launch a career in financial services, tech, healthcare, logistics uh, through uh, through through apprenticeship. Um, and what's also interesting is uh, those countries, the UK, Canada, Australia, uh, France, a generation ago, uh, their apprenticeship sectors looked a lot like the US, small and mostly in construction. And uh, what they've, uh, I'll stop, I'll stop sharing here. What they figured out uh, that we we haven't figured out on a system a systematic basis is that um, nowhere in the world where apprenticeships thrive, not in Germany, not in the U.S. construction trades, do they thrive because employers are more farsighted or more benevolent. They thrive because there are intermediaries that are either required in the case of Germany uh, or incentivized uh, in the case of Australia, the U.K. to do the heavy lifting of setting up and running these programs. Um, uh, and the more heavy lifting they do, uh, and the more they're funded, uh, the better these countries do, uh, on, uh, apprenticeship. Uh, our problem, uh, our major problem is that we spend over $500 billion a year 
in uh, taxpayer money, federal and state combined on our accredited colleges and universities. And we built the world's greatest um, infrastructure for tuition-based or what I would call debt-based uh, career launch. Uh, we we spend less than one one thousandth of that on earn and learn infrastructure, earn and learn pathways. So on four hundred million is what we spend on apprenticeship. Uh, if you compare the support that a given uh, apprentice receives relative to a college student, uh, total public uh, public dollars for every one dollar the apprentice receives uh, of public money, the college student receives fifty dollars. Uh, so I don't know whether the right ratio is one to one, two to one, or ten to one, but I'm pretty sure it's not fifty to one or a thousand to one. Right. And every other developed country is an order of magnitude higher than we are on earn and learn. So, do you, do you see any other uh, other European or Scandinavian countries um, excelling in teacher apprenticeships, or not something I've looked at? To be to be honest, Even the, the book is mostly about tech uh, okay. and healthcare. Yeah. At least uh, Aaron and uh, Maureen might be leading the world in in that. Category. It's quite possible. It's quite possible. I think the progress we've made is remarkable uh, on yeah. teacher apprenticeships. Obviously, in response to a, a dire uh, shortage. Um, so it's, it just goes to show that we can get our act together uh, when we uh, when, when we absolutely need to. And I'm hopeful that uh, we can we can begin to do this across the across the economy, not just for for teaching. And Ryan, I, this is a question I ask you every time we get together, but you, you, you've been most active in the post-baccalaureate tech space, tech and healthcare. Um, do, do you see apprenticeships moving down uh, the stack into AA and maybe even connecting like Chip's doing in, in Philadelphia at the, at the high school? I think that, um, look, there's a ton of uh, interest um philanthropic and, and otherwise in sort of building those pathways for, uh, you know, what are called youth, youth apprenticeship. Um, the challenge is if you can't convince an employer uh, to hire a 25 year old apprentice, it's very, right. it's, it's an order of magnitude higher to convince them to hire a 16 year old or an 18 year old who's either still in high school or just graduated high school. Uh, so we really, this is a, this is a, um, a process of changing employer behavior. Uh, employers are not used to running apprenticeship programs or hiring apprentices in this country outside the construction trades. Uh, in the UK, uh, as a result of, of smarter policy uh, and funding uh, for intermediaries, you have this ecosystem of a, uh, 1,200 apprenticeship service providers who are in the business of running around, knocking on employers' doors, uh, offering to set up and run apprenticeship programs uh, for them. Uh, and most of them do almost all of it. Uh, they may ask the employer to service the employer of record and pay the apprentice wage, but everything else, uh, the the recruiting, uh, the training, the mentoring uh, is all done by the apprenticeship uh, service provider and paid for uh, by the by the government. Uh, that's very different from where we are uh, as a as a country where we have apprenticeships for America, which is the nonprofit you referenced at the top. It's the uh, new trade association of apprenticeship intermediaries. We have 200 members, um, and we ought to have at least 4,000 given our our size. Um, so we haven't invested in it, and we don't have it, and uh, we need to do a lot better. Brian, is the is is the big barrier to dramatically increasing access to uh, quality apprenticeships in tech and and beyond? Is it um, access to Pell? Is it changing the uh, higher ed funding model? Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, 
I get asked that all the all the time. I, I think it's a it's a new re- it's a it's a different revenue stream. I think the part of the problem with apprenticeship is that to the extent we funded it, we funded it out of um, Department of Labor workforce uh, funds, and apprenticeships are different. Apprenticeships are not just training; they're not training programs. Um, they're jobs. They're jobs first and foremost. And there's no apprenticeship unless there's a willing employer willing to employ. Uh, some uh, uh, someone who, by definition, is going to not be productive for an extended period of time. So it starts with uh, how do you convince uh, tens of thousands of employers around the country uh, to do that? Uh, it's easier when you have a school district that can't uh, can't find teachers for classrooms, uh, obviously. Uh, but uh, you know, most 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 companies, most employers aren't in as dire a situation. They can leave positions unfilled. And so forth, they can uh, hire, um, you know, experienced, less qualified uh, candidates, uh, and they and they do. Um, but again, the key is this this ecosystem of intermediaries um, that uh, essentially spring into action and begin knocking on employers' doors and offering to do the heavy lifting of setting up and running these programs. Setting up an apprenticeship program is very is is time consuming and and. There are in the book I, I document there are the 10 things that a given employer is not doing today that they would need to do if they wanted to set up and run their own apprenticeship program. Uh, the most challenging of which is hiring and paying someone who you know is not going to be productive for an extended period of time. That's anathema to most employers. So um, it's a it's 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 a behavioral shift. It's a cultural shift, uh, but it won't start unless we can empower uh this um this ecosystem of intermediaries that uh that do the work uh ryan you you had mentioned the association for intermediaries is that the uh the new apprenticeship for america apprenticeships for america correct yeah apprenticeshipsforamerica.org uh that's a new nonprofit that you helped launch this that's year correct. yes last year yeah and um Karen Weber's asking about the difference between an uh, internship and apprenticeship. Sort of what's the... Sure. Yeah, an internship is a um, a work experience, hopefully paid, but not necessarily, um, that uh, a student uh, will undertake in the course of a program of study, whether it's uh, over over a summer uh, or in a a co-op program during a a term. Uh, But it's student first, and then job as part of program. An apprenticeship is the opposite. It's job first. You are hired by, uh, it's a full-time job. You are hired by an employer who's gonna employ you. You're receiving a W-2, you're getting benefits. As part of that job, there's formal and on-the-job training uh, incorporated. Super interesting topic. I learned a lot. Um, thanks for your book, Ryan. Thanks for your leadership on a on apprenticeships, uh, for your support for Apprenticeships for America. Uh, Chip, it was super, it was fun to visit with you last month. I'm glad um, your program's uh, doing great. And what a a treat to celebrate with Maureen and Aaron, the progress on uh, teaching apprenticeships. I think we're leading the world in this innovation, Maureen. We appreciate your leadership. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. And I just wanted to offer Tom, obviously, I feel like the administration spokesperson and need to just speak briefly for a moment about um, how apprenticeship has been a real priority of the Biden-Harris administration across uh, workforce systems and happy, Tom, to connect you with some of our colleagues at NEC if you're interested in, 
and having co- somebody come on and talk about um, broader investments or strategies to promote a- apprenticeship beyond education. Um, it's something that our NEC colleagues have been really excited and aggressive about. Uh, part of the reason this work has been um, so exciting is that there are truly no two things that he loves more than apprenticeships and teachers. So the work marrying those two things together um, right now has been really exciting, but it has absolutely been a priority in other sectors as well. So if you're interested, I can, I'm happy to connect you with uh, one of my uh, DPC or NEC colleagues to talk about that broader agenda on apprenticeship as well. Ryan, we we just need a few more Aaron Moats in other sectors. That's why we're absolutely we're, yeah. And we'll, we'll say that uh, apprenticeship is probably the one issue across education and workforce where you'll have as many uh, folks on the right side of the aisle agreeing with uh, what Maureen just said. So I, I'm 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 quite uh, uh, quite optimistic that we can get something uh, major done here over the next few years. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 